open with your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and he was with his custom. He taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command to you? He said. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because of your hearts hard that Moses wrote to you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male, male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they too will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. I think it's important to uh, note that tomorrow is Memorial Day, which is more than about picnics and family gatherings. Memorial Day was started just shortly after the Civil War, really as a day committed to honoring and remembering the men and women who died in service of our country in the armed forces, the United States Armed Forces. And I love, as I think about really how does a Christian look at Memorial Day, I love what General George S. Patton said. I I don't know where he stood with the Lord, but he was right on here when he said that it is foolish and wrong to mourn the, the men who died Rather, thank God that such men, and I would add women, lived. And that's really what we thank God for, that He in His providence raised up generations at each of the wars that came along to serve our country, even to the ultimate sacrifice of their life, and give their life for the protection of the freedoms that we now enjoy. But it's not a Memorial Day sermon. We are working through the Gospel of Mark. We started Mark chapter 10 last week, these first 12 verses dealing with marriage and divorce, such a difficult topic, such a challenging, emotionally loaded topic that there's no way I could have done it all in one week. There's really no way you can do it in two weeks, but uh, we're going to give it this last week. And um, I, I understand that of all the things that we talk about in Scripture, this hits so close to home for so many of us, whether we are directly involved in divorce or have been divorced or indirectly involved in divorce. So, again, we need the Holy Spirit to guide us through His Word, and I would ask that you just pause with me and join with me as I pray for that. Father, I, I, um, I pray the memory verse that you have me working on right now personally, Colossians 1.9 that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding, through all the, the, the wisdom and understanding that your Holy Spirit gives. Lord, we need to know what your will is about marriage and divorce because we live in a time and we live in families that are, are impacted by divorce. So we need to know what it is that, that you will. And Lord, to do that, we need spiritual understanding. We need the ability to 
First of all, know what your word says, how to put that all together. And then we need spiritual wisdom. We need that discernment for how does it apply in the difficult, complicated cases of our lives. Only you can do that, Lord. I pray that um, you administer even this morning to those who are, are hurting about this topic. And in some way, uh, even beyond any of my abilities, you would, you would give them hope and you would give them encouragement by your word and by the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I said this last week, but I want to say it again. If this is a sensitive topic to, to you, uh, I want you to keep in mind who Jesus is speaking to in our text today and who he's not speaking to. He is not speaking to people who've been wounded by divorce, all right? He's not speaking here to people who've experienced the painful effects of divorce. I do believe elsewhere in Scripture, he does speak to those people. If you want to write these down and look up it later, look at how he speaks to the woman in John chapter 4 and the other woman in John chapter 8, two women, I think, who were impacted by divorce. He speaks truth to them, but he speaks truth in grace, and he offers them forgiveness, and he offers them a relationship with him in a way that is healing and that is transforming. This is a very different context here. So don't take his harsh words as words to you directly if you are hurting or been hurt by divorce. He is speaking here to a group of Pharisees who we saw last week. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to put him in a position where he would politically be in danger, where he would even fall out of favor of the crowds. And so even as we look at this text, we need to remember this is not the only part of the Bible that speaks to divorce, and we need what's called the whole counsel of God. We need to look at all Scripture together, Old Testament and New Testament, as it speaks about divorce. And even as we look at this particular passage, we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. We need to understand what it is that he's referring to here that points us back to the Old Testament, that points us forward to other places in the New Testament. So let me just briefly recap from last week. We saw last week these Pharisees, they're focusing on the wrong question when they challenge him on divorce. And frankly, that's many people today. Maybe that's some of you that, that, that you know, really they have the wrong question in view when they're asking, you know, how do you divorce? That was consistent really with their bent and that culture probably the Pharisees led people in divorces. Divorce was at that point in the history of the nation of Israel. For a man, it was very easy to get. But Jesus wanted to look at uh, the real question they should be asking, which points back to what did God design? What did God intend from the very beginning? So he takes them back in verse 6, from the beginning of creation. He takes them back before the fall. He takes them back before men and women rebelled against God's will. He takes them back to when everything was perfect, where you see God's design in, in all of the world, including in marriage. And that's the question that Jesus wants us to ask today as we wrestle with, with marriage and divorce. What is God's perfect design here? What is the design? What is the purpose that God intended he tells us in verse 6, part of that design, God made them male and female. 
He is quoting Genesis 127 there. God created mankind or humanity, human beings, in His, God's own image. In His image, male and female, God created them. So, again, how did God originally design humanity? He created human beings to be in His image, but He didn't create that that image, that human image, to be exclusively male or exclusively female. Really, in a very simple way, both of those make up one half of the image of God. So he created male and female, these two distinct genders, that in the coming together you see, as much as we can see it on this side of heaven, you see the fullness of the image of God. So right in his design that marriage would be between, be between one man and one woman, we see his design, his purpose. One man, one woman coming together in marriage gives us a picture, however dim, of the image of God. Jesus also quotes Genesis 2.24, uh, also another text that, that God spoke before the fall of, and before sin entered the world. Jesus quotes that in verses 7 and 8. And what's he doing here? He's teaching that, that marriage is designed to be the joining or the cleaving together of that one man and that one woman into one flesh. That's the design. A man and a woman join their two distinct, unique personalities. They don't, become, they don't lose their personhood or their individuality, but they join those two distinct personalities together into one interdependent union, a, a, a team, a, a partnership. They come together even in their, their uh, they sacrifice their independence, but they come together interdependently to, to really in harmony function together. And in that, that coming together, there is that one fleshness, which certainly has the sexual connotation. They, they literally become one flesh, but that simply is a picture of the two parts of the image of God coming together, reuniting together uh, to give us a full picture of the image of God. That's the design. That's the intention. And let me say, I will be the first one to admit, my own marriage falls far short of living up to that design and that image. In fact, when I think of my marital experience, which I, I think is probably all your marital experience, if, if you are honest, it, it's, it, it, the, the book title from Dave Harvey seems to fit, When Sinners Say I Do. Yeah, that's what happens at a wedding ceremony. The, the, the two people who come together to say I do to each other, they're, they're two sinners coming together. Even if they're Christians, they're, they're, they're still saved sinners. They're still sinners where the flesh, Galatians 5 tells us, is at war with the Spirit. And so when two people, a man and a woman, come together in marriage, they, they bring their fleshness. They bring their baggage. They bring their wounding together. And no wonder that marriage is such a challenge. But the gospel speaks even to two sinners saying, I do. The gospel says that as that man and that woman embrace Jesus and seek to follow him, he works by his Holy Spirit through even their challenges and their difficulties and their disappointments to form the image of Christ in them, to merge their lives together uh, in Christ. So going on from there, from quoting those, those Genesis, those pre-fall scriptures, Jesus goes on in his own words in verse 9 
to point out, maybe this is obvious, but he points it out, the design of marriage is not to see it end. And that's what he means in verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, man, human beings, must not separate. Whether or not it was a Christian marriage when you entered into your marriage or not, God's design is it not be separated. I, I mean, let me just be very plain and very direct. Maybe you entered into your marriage before you knew Christ, before you were following Christ. Maybe it gets worse than that. Maybe you entered your marriage, you know, meeting your spouse in a drunken stupor at a bar, you know, or something like that, where you can think, think of the worst circumstances that you can think of for a man and a woman coming together in marriage. Guess what? Still, under the truth of God's providence, He brought the two of you together. And it is His will, what He has joined together, it is His will that that stays together. So Jesus is saying here that that no man, no human being, no man or woman should think that they have the right to break apart what God has joined together. Now that's the design. That's the ideal. That is a, that's how God purposed it to be. And, and really, we see here in verse 9, Jesus is affirming that design as strongly as possible. But I need to go on and say this. While Jesus upholds that design, while He upholds and affirms the sacredness of marriage, He does not deny that it is possible to break that marital bond. And that's really where I want to go with the remaining time this morning. I'm going to be focusing on what Jesus says and what the rest of Scripture says about how the bond of marriage can be broken. This is not a lesson in all the ways you can get out of your marriage. This is simply to acknowledge that while God's perfect design is that we stay together in marriage forever, God understands that with sin coming into the world, uh, we get put in situations where that becomes difficult, if not impossible. And God has given concessions in those kinds of situations, which we're going to look at, which speak to, to, to people who are stuck in those kinds of situations. This is certainly what the Pharisees wanted to know when they came to uh, Jesus. This is maybe what you want to know, so have some clarity on. We see the Pharisees ask this question, really getting down to this is what they want to know. And Mark 10, verse 2, and the parallel passage in Matthew 19, verse 3, when they say, putting the two together, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Now, that phrase, for any cause, is important. For any cause has particular meaning in that Jewish culture at that time. For any cause would be another way of saying, without any grounds. Really what they're asking is, is there no-fault divorce? Do you, Jesus, do you believe that a man, if he's unhappy in his marriage, that he doesn't need to state any grounds, that he can simply divorce his wife? And they're asking because they're pretty invested that that is the case. Like I mentioned earlier, the Pharisees really led in divorces, in easy divorces. And a man in that culture, not a woman, but a man could easily divorce his wife simply by tiring of her and giving her a certificate of divorce. That's where, that's not the Old Testament, but that's where things had progressed to this point in the history of the Jewish nation when Jesus is speaking here. 
So as we saw last Sunday, this, this, this any-cause divorce, this groundless, no-fault divorce, it was, uh, it was based on how they, they kind of twisted one particular passage of Scripture. It's the one alluded to in Mark 10 here, Deuteronomy 24, and particularly verse 1. It's up on the screen. If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he has found some indecency her, in her, he may divorce her. He may give her a certificate of divorce. The majority of the rabbis took the first part of that phrase, if he becomes displeasing to her. If I, if I become displeased with my wife, they would say, I can be done with her. If uh, she no longer looks attractive to me, if she speaks back to my mother, if she is disrespectful to me, if she burns the food, if she, uh, she spends too much of my money, I can, I can say without any other grounds, without any real grounds, the marriage is over and the woman had no recourse in that. However, there were other rabbis, probably a minority of rabbis, who said, well, wait, wait a minute. You need to read that phrase in its full context. What does the, the very next words go on to say? It is not because she becomes displeasing to him. It's because she becomes displeasing to him because he has found some indecency in her. And that, that phrase, some indecency, it's, it's hard to get a handle on because it doesn't really appear uh, very much in Scripture, but it has a sexual connotation. It may well have included adultery, but it goes far wider than adultery. I think we could say it is any form of sexual immorality that violates the marriage. So it is any form of, of sexual unfaithfulness that is, is what the more conservative group of, of rabbis had to say. And Jesus, in answering the, the Pharisees, as we saw last week, he clearly condemns the, the majority group. He clearly condemns any cause divorce, no grounds divorce, no fault divorce. In fact, he would say that divorce without any grounds leads to the sin of adultery in the eyes of God if the man divorcing his wife without any grounds goes on and remarries. That's what we see again in the companion passage, Matthew 19.9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. You might have picked up that exception phrase there. That's, again, what Jesus is focusing on here, except for sexual immorality. Jesus is reinforcing here what the conservative rabbis, the position that they took, that even though God's design for marriage is that it be permanent, there is a concession God makes when your spouse is sexually unfaithful to you. And because he uses this word, uh, this sexual immorality, that is not specific to adultery, that is wider, that is any kind of sexual conduct that violates the marriage. I don't have time to go into that today, but when we think about the applications in our culture, in our life, we, we think about that, all the ways that a person can be sexually unfaithful. Jesus seems to be saying, you know, God makes a concession in those kinds of cases. So while God's design for marriage is that marriage be permanent, He does provide the concession for divorce in cases of sexual unfaithfulness. Is that the only grounds? Is that the only grounds for divorce? Many would say so. 
Many would say so, pointing here to Mark chapter 10 or Matthew 19, because they would say that's all that, that Jesus seems to address is sexual unfaithfulness. But remember the context. Jesus is speaking to a very specific challenge. He is not trying to give a wide teaching on divorce. And so we need to look further than that. We need to see even what Jesus, how Jesus views the Old Testament law, what the Old Testament had to say about divorce. Because what do we know about Jesus and the law? We know from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 17, that Jesus, in viewing God's law in the Old Testament, said, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Now, some of it he he completely fulfilled at the cross. All the ceremonial law and the sacrifices, he completed those. Those are done at the cross. Those pointed to the way he would save us from sin. But God's moral law, the Ten Commandments and and, and all the, the Old Testament law that flows out of the Ten Commandments, what we call God's moral law, Jesus didn't abolish that. Jesus, in fact, says, if you follow me, you'll live that out. You'll live that out, actually, the, the deepest intentions of those. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus expounding what it really means to live out the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. And so he doesn't abolish the law. He doesn't want us to put away the law. The law, as it speaks to marriage and divorce in the Old Testament, he wants us to look at that. He wants us to live that out. How do we do that? How do we think about Old Testament law? When we think about all the law in the Old Testament, maybe this distinction will be helpful to you that has been helpful to me. I I see the distinction between the details of the law and the principles of the law. The details of the law are how the the Ten Commandments applied in the specific situation of the nation of Israel living in the first century. The principles of the law are the timeless truths that come out of the law, the way that the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law applies in every culture and in every time. So what are the principles? What are the universal, timeless principles that we see in the Old Testament of God's law for marriage? I think we see a glimpse of that in how the vows were exchanged in Jewish marriages. I, I think there's a, there's a living picture of that, and, and I think you'll see the relevance even to how we enter into marriage today. If you are a Jewish man or a Jewish woman coming into marriage, at your wedding ceremony, you gave vows, you spoke vows, and in those vows, you promised three things. You promised, first of all, to materially support your spouse. If you were a man, that meant at that culture that you would provide food, you would provide clothing or the money to do so, and you would provide shelter for your wife. If you were a woman in that culture, that meant that uh, you would you would prepare the meals with that food. You would mend or make the clothes. You would, you would keep the home. You would care for the children that you raised in the home. You would materially support each other. But they also vowed to love each other. And don't read into that some of our, our modern subjective views of love. Uh, by love, they meant that you would, you would give your husband, your wife, emotional affection and and sexual affection, that that was part of what it meant to love each other. 
And they also promise to be faithful to each other. They promise to forego all forms of sexual immorality and be sexually faithful to each other. And those of you who are married, if you think about the vows that you made when you were at the front of that church in front of your family and friends, you said, or something very close to this, I promise to love and honor and cherish my wife, my husband. That's where this came from. It came from these vows. Love, honor, and cherish are these vows of material support and emotional support, emotional affection, and being sexually faithful. Well, the Old Testament law recognized these principles underlying these vows, and the Old Testament law, as it spoke to marriage, sought to undergird them to even make sure that these principles would be lived out. And there are many places in the Old Testament. I'm I'm just going to point to one today, Exodus 21. Exodus chapter 21 is a situation where the law was was addressing sin that was happening in marriages. And the the situation is this. this, It addressed situations where uh, a woman was married to a man, and uh, without divorcing her, he took another wife. He was committing polygamy. By Exodus 21, speaking to a situation of polygamy, it's in no way endorsing polygamy. It is, it is God saying this wickedness happens, and when it does, it is particularly difficult and painful and punitive to the wife, and so I'm going to regulate it. I'm going to give laws for how they should live in situations where a man has taken a second or third wife. Let me just read verses 10 and 11. If he marries, if the husband marries another woman, he must not deprive the first wife of her food, clothing, and marital rights. And if he does not provide her with these three things, she is free to go without the payment of money. Well, here we see the law addressing those three vows to provide material support, food and clothing, to provide emotional support and affection, these marital rights, conjugal rights, and to be sexually faithful. We see, first of all, we see the vow of material support. So the law here is saying that if a husband denies his first wife the food and clothing that she needs to survive, he'd be viewed under the law as having broken his vow to her. And having broken his vow, she has the right, if she wants it, to leave. She has the right to divorce him. And in divorcing him, without any payment of money. She doesn't have to sacrifice the bride price that her father had to pay or put on deposit when she entered the marriage. This law also addresses the vow of physical affection. If this man, in taking a second wife, if he refused with his first wife to bear children with her, if he denied her sexual rights, if he denied her emotional affection, He could be viewed under the law, again, as breaking his vow to her. And that provided her, if she wanted it, that provided her the ability to leave the marriage to divorce him. So just bringing this all together very quickly, under the Old Testament law, there were three grounds for divorce. The neglect of material support, that food and clothing and shelter and protection. The neglect of physical affection of conjugal rights, of emotional affection, and, the, and sexual unfaithfulness. 
The, the, the Old Testament speaks to these. Jesus did not abrogate these. He did not erase these. Now, you may ask, you know, what about, what about abuse? Does the law speak to abuse? Well, when you think about abuse, really these same principles apply. Physical abuse. If a man beats his wife or a woman beats her husband, what is that? Physical abuse is an extreme form of material neglect. Rather than providing what each other needs and protecting each other, they're doing the reverse of that. Think of emotional abuse. Emotional abuse is an extreme form of neglect of affection. Rather doing, than doing what they vowed, they're doing the exact opposite of what they vowed. Sexual abuse. Sexual abuse is an extreme form of sexual unfaithfulness when they vowed to be sexually faithful, and now they are twisting that in, in, in ways I can't even speak here. They are doing 180 degrees of what they vowed. So even abuse falls under these grounds. Under God's moral law, which Jesus upholds, which Jesus actually, if anything, adds to and gives added meaning to looking at even the motives of our heart, under God's moral law, these are grounds for divorce. Why? Because they break those marital vows. And that's the way I believe that we should look at the difficult situations that we look at. What were the vows? How were the vows broken? Can there be repair of those? That leads to my next question. We need to ask where these grounds exist. One or more of these grounds exist in a marriage. Is divorce the only answer? In other words, if your husband or your wife has violated one of these vows or more than one of these vows, is divorce commanded in these cases? And we have to come back to what Jesus said in Mark 10.5 and Matthew 19.8. Moses permitted you to divorce. He didn't command you to divorce in these situations. God made a concession. So it is permitted. It is, com it is not commanded. And, and here's the key phrase. He permitted you to divorce because of the hardness of heart. Let me illustrate that. Let me illustrate that with breaking the vow of sexual faithfulness. As a pastor, I have walked through a number of situations with couples where one or the other spouses has been sexually unfaithful in the marriage. And there have been some of those situations where the unfaithful partner has become broken by their sin. And in being broken by their sin, they have asked forgiveness and they have demonstrated repentance, not just at the moment, but ongoing, living out a life of repentance. And the, the wounded spouse, seeing that genuine contrition, seeing that, that repentance demonstrated over time, has been willing to forgive and stay in the marriage. And, and it takes time. Sometimes it takes years. But I've seen marriages like that become reconciled. But I've seen the opposite as well. I've seen marriages where one has been sexually unfaithful, and there's what Jesus calls here the hardness of heart where the sexually unfaithful spouse says to his, his or her spouse, I don't care what you think. 
I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to keep pursuing that person. I'm going to keep pursuing this kind of sexual fulfillment. And you, you can't tell me what to do. No pastor, no elder, no church can tell me what to do. That represents the very opposite of repentance and contrition. That represents what Jesus calls here a hardness of heart. And that really is what I think determines whether the breaking of any of these marriage vows will lead to reconciliation or divorce. Is there repentance? Because then there can be forgiveness, and then there can be reconciliation. Or is there hardness of heart and persistent hardness of heart opens up the concession for divorce. Well, finally today, I want to I, I conclude with how the Apostle Paul takes these teachings of Jesus, and, and he applies them to us. He applies them to Christians living in a no-fault divorce culture. That's, that's uh, certainly what we live in. You don't need to have any grounds for divorce. You can divorce for irreconcilable differences or because you've fallen out of love or whatever it is that you may want to say, that's the, the culture we live in. And that was the culture that Paul was writing to in 1 Corinthians 7. Corinth was under Roman law where divorce was easy. And if you were a man and, and uh, you wanted to divorce your wife, all you had to tell her is pack your stuff, get out of the house. We're done. If you're a woman and you wanted to divorce your husband, all you had to do was, was say, uh, I, I'm leaving, I'm packing, I am gone. And divorce under Roman law was that easy. There was no legal need to state any grounds for divorce. Sounds much like our situation today. The Apostle Paul, taking these teachings of Jesus, speaks to followers of Jesus. He speaks to not just those in Corinth, but he speaks to you and me. How do you live in a no-fault divorce culture? I can't do the whole passage, but very briefly, let me give you three principles. One comes out of what he says to the, to the wife and the husband in verses 10 and 11. To the wife, verse 10, the wife should not leave her husband. Women, if you have no grounds, if there are no biblical grounds like we have just covered, Paul is saying, Jesus is saying, don't leave your husband. He says in verse 11, the husband should not send his wife away. And he's indicating there that in that culture, usually it was the husband who owned the house. And so it's a kicking her out of the house. And he's saying, husband, if there are no grounds and you claim to follow Jesus, do not put your wife out. Do not send her away. And here's the principle that I would say that applies then and now. Do not initiate a groundless divorce. You've heard these grounds, this neglect, material neglect, this emotional, physical neglect, and sexual unfaithfulness, anything beyond that. I don't care what nice legal term like irreconcilable differences we put on that. Paul would say, do not initiate it. Do not initiate a divorce if there is uh, no grounds except in cases of hard-hearted breaking of the marriage vows, divorce is not an option for Christians. That's what Paul is saying here. But then he speaks to uh, Christians, maybe, maybe some of you, I don't know. He speaks to Christians who've done that. He speaks to Christians who have walked out on their husband or wife without any biblical grounds. And he says in verse 11, but if she does leave, let her remain unmarried 
or else be reconciled to her husband. And I think the principle is, is if you find yourself as a believer in one of those situations and there are no grounds and yet you've already stepped over that threshold, if you're separated, seek to be reconciled. Don't enter into another marriage. If you enter into another marriage, another relationship, if, if, if your spouse who you have left enters into another relationship, that door of reconciliation closes. But he says, if you find yourself in that situation, seek repentance, seek reconciliation, seek the reconciliation of the marriage. And then finally, he speaks to what if you are the spouse who's been left? What if you are the spouse who your spouse has hard-heartedly rejected you and is rejecting reconciliation? He speaks to that in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to peace. What is he saying there? He's saying what Jesus recognizes, that if you are the victim of a groundless divorce, most often you have nothing you can do to affect that. You can't change that person's heart. I can't change that person's heart. Only God can change that, part, that person's heart. And he's saying if there is that hard-heartedness, you're not punished. You're not somehow, now you have this mark upon you. You're not denied the right to remarry. The principle is this. If you are divorced against your will, you're free to remain single, but you're also free to remarry. That is certainly not God's design, but God in His grace in this fallen world recognizes that sin impacts us, sin wounds us, and He makes this concession. Let me just close very briefly with this. In some ways, I know I may have stirred up for some of you more questions than even you had at the beginning. And I would invite you, seek me out confidentially or one of our pastors or someone in our counseling department. Uh, It would be our privilege to wrestle through how these principles apply to the specifics of, of your situation, your challenging situation. And that's what we're here for, and that's what we want to do. We want to help you follow the gospel, follow Jesus, even through these difficult, painful situations in your life. And then let me close with this. We can't stop looking at divorce without remembering the bigger context. Mark 10, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's only got days left with his disciples. And what does he want them to see? That you, you follow me. If you really are a follower of me, you give me everything. You give me your lives. You give me your marriage. You give me your singleness. You give me your widowhood. All of that you sacrifice, you give to me as a follower of me. And Jesus calls us to the same. Wherever you are in your marriage or in a divorce state or your singleness, Jesus says, submit it to me. Submit it to me. It's part of what it means to follow me, and I will lead you through. I will give you the grace. I will lead you through. Let's pray. Father, what a challenging, challenging topic because of the realities of our lives in this fallen world. And we really are, as we come into marriage, we're two sinners just saying, I do. And all that sin and all the past and all the baggage and all the wounding, Lord, makes marriage that is supposed to be a picture of the image of you challenging and hard sometimes. 
So we need you, Lord, not only to forgive us for our sin, we need you to empower us. We need your spirit to live through us. We need you to work out the gospel in the midst of our marriages. We need you to work out the gospel, even if we've really blown our marriages in our new relationships, Lord, in our singleness. We need the gospel. You need you to work out the gospel in our lives. Do this, Lord, so that we are faithful followers of you. Do this, Lord, so that beauty would rise out of the ashes and that you would be lifted up and glorified. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.